not seen until you let go of what is seen. I'm talking about your money. I'm sorry it took so long. My laptop has been sitting in my car for three days and it was like blistering hot when I got it out. And I was like, oh, that's not good. And I was just like, uh, let me just let this cool off real quick before I turn <laughs> well, it be- Because you've already set one computer on fire in that house. <laughs> so let's not have a, a do-over. Uh, so they've been okay, though. I've grilled some food. I played on a little slip and slide with my kid. It's been a good day. This is some Travis Tritt. I got rice cooking in the microwave. Got a three-day beer. No, I don't. <laughs> no, you don't. And you got a haircut, too. Yeah, I did get a haircut. I kind of hate it. She went up way too high for my liking. Man, it's hair. It'll grow back. Yeah. Better be growing back before June 18th. That's right. That's right. So how was your week, man? What did you do? I didn't hear much from you this week. Uh, I don't know what I did this week. Oh, my sister's graduation. It was yesterday. My sister graduated high school. Congratulations to your sister. Yeah, Gabby. If you listen to this, I'm very, very proud of you. You're doing great. You're going to be fine. Everything will be fine. Life is forever changed. You can't go back. Life is horrible. But it'll be okay. It'll be fine. God, she's way too young for you to be planning thoughts like that. Just like, you know, yeah, you have fun right now. You should have should have failed a few grades. You could have held on to a little bit longer. <laughs> College is fun if you decide to go. And if you don't, then you know what? You do your own thing. Uh, she's going to do, uh, like, she's going to, like, take a little break and work a job for a little while and then go to college, which I personally, I think that's better because yeah. I went to college straight after high school and I failed hard. I think it's it's one of these things that I think you have to want to go to college. You know, like, if you feel like it's a forced thing and you, you've just graduated high school, right? So, you've been forced to go for, you know, the last 12 years um, and you didn't have a choice in it. And it's like, if you, if you go immediately to something else that feels forced, either by your parents or, you know, whoever's around you that's telling you you have to do this and you don't actually make the decision yourself. I don't think it's, I, I don't think that that's the best way to do things. And I think that's why you see a lot of older people would be like, Hey, if I went to college now, I'd take it a lot more seriously. I think I'd actually have a better time of doing it, but then it's like, but I can't now because I've got a house or a kid or whatever it is. And, and you're, you're kind of stuck, you know, that way. And I just think it's like, if you don't want to do it and you don't have that appreciation of what it is, I don't know if it's as beneficial. Plus you get out of school with all this freaking college debt. And I feel terrible for anybody that goes to, that has to borrow money, which is almost everybody, at least everybody I know to go to any kind of school, even if it's like a community college, it's like, really, you're taking out money for a community college. That's crazy to me. Well, my problem wasn't necessarily always forced because I grew up with my grandparents. So my papa is very much you go to school, then you get a job, then you work until you die. And that's the way life is. So I wasn't forced, but I went and I was like overwhelmed with all this newfound freedom that I had. And I just party, 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 partied. And I didn't do my homework. Didn't I didn't even show up to class half the time. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, give you the boot. You kicked out now. You owe us fifteen thousand dollars. Yep, happens to a lot. <laughs> happens to a lot of people, and it's yeah. I mean, it also is. You also got to think it's like the first, like you said, it's the first taste of freedom that a lot of people have. It's like I'm out of the house. I'm away from my parents, my grandparents, whoever you know raised me, took care of me. Now I'm gonna go crazy with a bunch of people my age because there's no one here to tell me not to. You know, because you're not as parented in in college. Like your professors are there to teach class, and that's the extent of it. But you know. 
it's you know uh, listen i'm an art school dropout so i i'm right there with you and look at you'll us never guess what i went to school for never um okay i well i mean I oh it's like, not major austin um okay i have two things i want to say one is engineering and the other one is way out of left field and i know this isn't right but i just you you're baiting me like it is would be like culinary arts no, my major was criminal justice. Criminal justice. <laughs> oh, how that, the times that, change. That I didn't see from from the guy who's in a Facebook war with his local sheriff now for being a, a dickhead. Uh, but hey, listen, I mean, you're using some of that as we're busting these grifters. I never got to the fucking criminal justice part. <laughs> I never got to. I had to take remedial math. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to take uh, some lit thing and some public speaking course. And I failed all of them. I failed every single class that I was taking. Okay, so let's say it, you passed them. What was your end game after you got a criminal justice degree? Dude, I was going to be a fucking cop. Can you believe oh, that? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, right. That's, kinda, that's what I was hoping you'd say. But at the same time, like that makes me feel bad inside. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, listen, like, I don't know, like, think, just a lot changed really fast when I got out of the house. Like, my viewpoints did a complete 180. It's funny that. how that happens, especially, yeah. I mean, we say it over and over again, especially here, especially when you're raised in, like, a, a strict religious upbringing. You know, it's like you get out and you're like, oh, my God, you mean the rest of the world is not like this? I'm going to go crazy. Well, I was, I was going to, I was going to bring up my highlight this week. My thing this week was seeing the Netflix movie Army of the Dead, which I was pretty excited about. And then I watched it and it was like, eh, eh. <laughs> well, what's it about? It's just, it's a continuation of like the Night of the Living Dead series. You know, it's just mm. like the, the latest version of it. Uh, and it's about, you know, Vegas has been overtaken by zombies. And so they have to quarantine the city. And then they send in uh, Dave Batista and a team of. They have to go. So they have to go and break into a bank and steal this money out of the zombie infested Las Vegas. And I don't know. I wasn't I didn't love it. But what it did inspired me to think about was and i'm gonna throw this on you didn't tell you about this before so i'm gonna make it just three what who are your top three favorite pro wrestlers turned actor uh number one john cena <laughs> you just say john cena uh number two edge okay this is number such a generational exercise too i'm just because i know it right now number three stone cold steve austin actually take edge out put the rock in and then number three how did did you leave the rock out well he dude i forgot he was a wrestler (laughs) (laughs) all right so what is it again john cena the rock stone cold steve austin okay mine was a little different mine was and this is this is this shows it roddy piper number one i he was only in like two movies Uh, he's in a bunch but there's only two that anybody remember those two (laughs) are so worth it you talk about john cena how many movies john cena's been in that it's hit a a theater uh the movie blockers blockers is really funny okay the the amy schumer movie all right so that's that's at least as many as Uh, the blockers is the amy schumer movie no but also the amy schumer movie oh yeah 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 it is what is it god that movie was so funny i hate amy schumer but that movie was hilarious that seems very good too. <laughs> that's supposed to be Dolph Ziggler. Oh, was it? Like that's yeah, that's supposed to be like when she was in a relationship with Dolph Ziggler. That's who John Cena's supposed to be portraying. 
I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. So number one, Roddy Piper. Number two, I gotta say, I, and even though I didn't like the movie, I've liked uh, Batista and everything that he's done. Yeah. He's great in Guarding the Guardians Galaxy. Oh, he's good so in this. He's just like, and he's, uh, he's a guy that I'd like to chill with uh, and just hang out. And number three is a toss-up. And I couldn't decide. I, I was going back and forth between Jesse Ventura. I've never seen the movie Je- Jesse Ventura. Have you never seen the original Predator? No. Have you we never seen Running did, Man? We literally had a whole fucking Twitter argument over me not seeing the Predator on Twitter. I must day. not have been in that. I wasn't in it. <laughs> I didn't see and that. Don, uh, I'm using Don, D-O-N, Don, not Don. Yes. But I'm using Don's uh, MB account on my t- on my fire stick so i can watch like tv shows and movies or whatever and he messaged me after the whole tour like dude i have predator on my mb <laughs> go watch it please dude, watch it. it's so good <laughs> yeah and he was in running man which is also excellent another arnold schwarzenegger movie anyway yeah but it's also jesse ventura but then he's tied with kevin nash oh kevin nash is so good <laughs> he's so good and everything yeah. and i think what it is is like I would go out and grab drinks with all four of those guys. You know, Roddy Piper, rest in peace. But, like, that would be a fun time with Ventura. I have drinks with Ventura. Just get into that batshit crazy brain. Yeah. I mean, with, like, Piper would be great, you know, when he was around. Nash and Batista both just seem like cool guys. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Nash is the coolest. I want to meet Kevin Nash so bad. But, uh, dude, have you seen The Condemned with Stone Cold Steve Austin? Mm -mm. No, I just remember him from the second um expendables movie okay where um, he broke sylvester stallone's nose in real life because, really yeah stallone got a little cocky and told him not to pull a punch and this okay is brother and he's like are you sure about that and he said yeah just just hit me i can take it and he did he broke his nose <laughs> that rules god he's so cool he's uh, besides uh you know that one thing he did that one time he's so cool <laughs> But, uh, dude, the condemned are so good. Think uh, Hunger Games. It's basically the Hunger Games, except um, it takes 10 people that are on uh, death row in prison. And they put them on this island, and it's a reality show producer that's doing it. So he's contacted all these privately owned prisons and told me, like, give me somebody that's on your death row. And I'm going to put them in this reality show. And he does it online on a website. And basically, you got to pay to watch it or whatever. It's like a pay-per-view. And the... They put 10 people people on the island and whoever is the last one surviving wins and they get to walk free. And throughout the movie, you found out that Steve Austin is actually innocent of the crime that, you know, uh, he's in prison for. And I don't know, man, it's really cool. I I like it. A lot of people think it's cheesy, but I like it, especially Hunger Games with prisoners. Listen, I I watch a lot of really bad movies and love them, so I won't judge on that. I was also like 11 when I first saw this movie, so maybe all nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's better just to let that go. Uh, yeah. So who the fuck are we covering? You never told me who we were covering today. I'm coming in completely blind. I like it. This is what I wanted. So we are covering today a woman named Anne Odelia Disdebar. She has a truckload of aliases so i'm not even gonna get it i mean we'll touch on a few of them as we go um i thought about like doing a bingo card and we do all of our different aliases and see how long it would take (laughs) it just took me too much time to write it and i was like i don't have time to do the bingo card um but um we will maybe in the show notes we can list all a bunch of her aliases because just a ridiculous amount of these these 
AKA so and so. AKA so and so. So yeah, so this one is going to be a little different because there's not a lot redeeming about this woman at all. I mean, she is a pretty rotten human being from like the jump. I mean, from the very beginning, she was a terrible little kid and grew into a terrible woman and <laughs> just was like I think sometimes we can have fun with some of our, our, our people even though they're doing like really fundamentally terrible things right and I was like I don't think we're gonna get that out of this woman um just, oh, no. <laughs> just sort of put that out there uh so she was born in Kentucky in 1849 her dad's a school teacher um he was a refugee in the United States from uh Germany and he really does isn't it I mean he's he's a music teacher but he his real passion is inventing and so he spends all of his time coming up with new patents and experimenting with technology and like little gadgets and gizmo he's on the road a lot he goes to dc a bunch to 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 visit the patent office and try to get the patents and then once he gets those he tries to sell them to companies that he thinks might be able to use them by all accounts it doesn't sound like he was terribly successful but he was really driven and he did have a bunch of patents it just they didn't always sell um, but what was clear is that he always had these elaborate workshops wherever they lived and they moved around a bunch based on what he was up to uh, and so like the, the labs would sometimes have like different chemicals and different you know like little gadgets and gizmos and um, and Odelia, his daughter, the youngest of his daughters, he had four children total, would go down there and kind of experiment and play around with this, these like chemicals and these gadgets and gizmos and, and just tinker in her dad's. Uh... That's, that's sweet. Yeah, right? Seems sweet. Yeah. Um, it became obvious, though, pretty early on that she was not like the other children. Um, I want to read a really quick passage from uh, her biography, which, which is called uh, Empress of Swindle, and it's by uh, John Benedict Boucher. Um, and he says, by the age of six, she was slinging mud pies at her older sisters, throwing their clothes in the fire breaking crockery in fits of self-absorbed rage and stealing and hiding food, money, pretty baubles, and batches of her father's chemicals. <laughs> like her father, she was bright, shrewd, and inventive, learning naturally, almost by absorption. She learned French and German from her uh, Alastian father, for example. But she had no use for discipline, and she used her intellect and iron will for the purpose of causing general mayhem. Her school teachers regarded her as unruly and even as intractably depraved. Oh, wow. So, She's like a fucked up Powerpuff girl. Yeah. She, <laughs> she was, I, I read that. I was like, you're throwing your sister's clothing in the fire. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Jesus. <laughs> um, they... I will say it's one thing that does come up over and over again is a lot of men call her insane. And I don't think that she's, I, I didn't get the feeling that she's like clinically Listen, insane. Men call a lot of women insane. Okay. Yes. Especially <laughs> at this time, the time that we're, we're talking about, I mean, this was like high time for institutionalizing women. Women were in mental institutions at a rate of two to one to men. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was like, oh, you're having an emotional problem. You're probably insane and deserve to be locked up. So I, I think this woman, like I'll say at the beginning, is like a total sociopath, but I don't think she was like insane. I think she just had no moral compass whatsoever. And that's the way that she kind of skated through life. <laughs> um, yeah. So she re began lying very early on and she would lie a lot. And she, it was, it was really clear that she didn't like her family. She didn't like her brothers uh, or sister, her brother or sisters. She didn't, doesn't, there's not much about her mom. Um, 
And her dad dies pretty early in her life. So her oldest brother kind of takes up, up at the top of the, the family, takes over as the patriarch of the family. But by the age of 10, she would run away from home for days at a time and then show back up, just wander home at 10. Well, what about her parents? They weren't like, oh, where's my kid gone? Her, her dad was gone a lot. I mean, like I said, these business trips took him out of there. And I think her, I, it, like I said, I don't, I can't get a sense of what her mom is because there's like nothing. The thing about this woman is she didn't keep journals because of her lifestyle. She doesn't want to keep records. Like the only thing that we've got are court transcripts and, and newspaper articles to kind of patch this woman's life together. Oh, wow. So that happened today. You'd have like a Facebook post and yep. Twitter tweets and Amber alerts and right, all, that, right. all that crazy stuff. Yeah. For her, she really, she stayed on the move a lot and there just wasn't anything. I mean, she's not carrying, keeping a diary because that would, you know, that would, that would reveal too much about her. And you'll definitely see that there's a lot about the deceptions that she gets up to. Sidebar. Do you think like Twitter and social media in general has replaced diaries for people? Yeah. I, not completely, but I think a lot of it. Yeah. Because, I mean, I thought about it, like, while you were saying, it's like, wow, I kind of just, like, use Twitter as my diary. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's, I mean, like, everybody else we've covered is either self-published a book or, you know, several books, with the exception of Cleo, uh, or Cleo, sorry. No, Cleo. Sorry. I was right. Right. It's kind of like killing off creativity a little bit. I think so, too. I think the journal, is, I mean, I don't, I've never really kept one, but, like, sitting down and writing stuff to paper, like, your feelings, there's a, there's a lot of therapy in that. And I don't well, think it's necessarily a bad thing. I'm sorry for a distraction. <laughs> no, it's okay. Mm. So she ran away starting at 10 and she'd come home and she'd have these like insane stories about where she's been. Sorry, I didn't mean to say insane. I've already said that I don't think she's been very elaborate stories that were obviously, <laughs> no, that are obviously not true. And she would tell about these adventures. Um, it, eventually, and this is going to come up later, but I thought it's a good way to kind of to, to set her her background, her brother George, who again took over as the patriarch of the family, in a sworn um, court deposition would say, it would be necessary for others to see her as all her family have to comprehend the depth and magnitude of her many villainies. Wherever she enters a house, peace departs, and with it, everything portable. Nothing is safe in her hands. As an intriguer, she has few equals and no no superiors. I would not believe her under oath, under any circumstances. Oh, wow. That's her brother. Jesus Christ. And, and that's in court. He actually swears in court. This is a few years down the road, and we'll kind of circle back on that, that trial. But, yeah, everybody that's around her is just like, if it, if it can be swiped, it will. She'll take it, and she will ruin your life. <laughs> <laughs> so If it's not nailed down. Right, exactly. <laughs> So the family ends up eventually in New York City, and around the same time, um, they, they, there's a Broadway theater, and it's not on Broadway. It's actually called the Broadway Theater. So okay. Broadway, New York. see how that would be confusing. A little confusing. That, the, the Broadway Theater is actually on the Lower East Side. Broadway itself is like an area in Midtown, which is not close to the, the Lower East Side. Uh, but there was a woman that was performing named Lola Montez. And she's kind of an interesting figure. She was a dancer uh, that traveled around the world. And she eventually became a dancer with the Bavarian Opera. And not long after that, she caught the interest of King Ludwig I of Bavaria. And he was like, she will be mine. Uh, oh, of course, wow. he was already married. So she became his mistress. 
it seems like from everything I've read that he that she wielded a lot of power and a lot of influence over him, and this was a problem because the the church and the aristocrats were like, why is this dancer, which is essentially, it was, it wasn't stripping because it didn't exist at the time, right. but it was, you know, it was a little bit more evocative that there's this dancer that the king like is burlesque, telling. Maybe. It's, it's a, I mean, she was a real dancer, kind of became burlesque, but that, that didn't matter. Like a dancer kind of had that reputation as like, this is below what a king should, who a king should be seeing. So the public knew about his mistress the public knew i think it was i think it was pretty public because she became such a part of the court you know and he started giving her uh nobility titles so she wasn't born of noble blood uh she was given um two different titles she was given the baroness of rosenthal and the countess of landsfeld were her the two titles that she was gifted right so there's a lot of upheaval um a lot of the sort of liberal i'm going to say liberal and conservative it's not the same but it's you know that's just to make it clear liberals wanted a lot of policy changes in bavaria the conservatives and the church were like we can't have you dating you know or seeing this woman and this woman having any sort of say in our government so a lot of pressure uh ludwig ends up um handing down his crown to his son and so he he is no longer the king uh lola is banished from bavaria she oh wow she's she's exiled and so she's back on the road she's kind of a wild figure too she starts um doing a show she has a show that she's written called the adventures of lola montez in bavaria and it's like her take on what happened when she was seeing the king and helping to run this kingdom That's and interesting all of the stuff yeah super interesting and i wish like you could see something it sounds like a lot of it was not made up but it was exaggerated which it has to be for any sort of show what's the what's the what's the saying uh, oh don't let the truth get in the way of a good story there you go ding pay that bill <laughs> um, so yeah, she has the show. She is, uh, at one point, she is in Australia, and she performs the show, and a newspaper runs a really scathing... What time period are we in? We are in the 1840s. Oh, wow. She's very well-traveled. Yeah. Yeah. She really gets around. This is probably actually mid-1850s, because she, uh, Ludwig, um, leaves the throne in 1848. Okay. And so she's, she's over in Australia. She does a show. She gets a terrible review. She shows up at the editor's uh, office with a bullwhip and absolutely terrorizes him over the terrible review. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which at one point I was like, she's kind of badass. I like her. Uh, then on the way back from... I don't from, know what to do if anybody gives our show a better view on iTunes. Just show up at the house. <laughs> well, she, she also apparently, and later on she was in California entertaining um, gold miners because of the gold rush that happened in California. And she had a pet bear that she kept on a leash. So everybody stayed away from her because she had this giant bear on a leash. People say that we need guns for protection. No, man, just get a bear. Yeah, no one's know what to do with bears coming at you. Forget that. Like, gonna, that's it. Um, that's it's, it's got to be a joke where the right to bear arms is in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in Australia, she's actually there, there's a story. I don't. I, again, this is tough to piece together because she's a little bit of a not a grifter but a drifter, where she just kind of travels around a lot of places and makes money in a lot of different ways and and different places. But she um, had, she was coming back from Australia with her manager, like the the person who's setting up all these shows. 
and he suddenly tragically falls overboard and dies. And there seems to be a lot of suspicion that she might have pushed him overboard. <laughs> not, not. It's not like uh, they had cameras or anything back then. Right, and it's nothing's confirmed. It's all like rumor and speculation, and it's whatever was printed in the papers. So there's there's definitely a trend of like her around traveling around trying to you know make her money however she can, and then there may could be a couple of bodies uh, laying <laughs> in, in, the, in the waste. And you know she she managed to. Um, when she was in Bavaria, she made her way into the upper crust of society by sleeping with very rich and important men. And she kind of okay. traded up and traded up and traded up. And then she caught Ludwig's eye. Um, unfortunately, after she was exiled from Bavaria, she was in like her early 30s, which was just too old to do that anymore. Which right. is insane if you think about it right now. Yeah. So she's mostly reliant on her show. Well, people only lived to like what, fucking forty back then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's she's. I mean, they were calling her old. She was it, so in 1858. She was, which is when um, Anne Odelia is in her family's in New York. That's the same time that Lola Montez is in New York. She's 36 years old, and they're like, oh, she's way past her prime. But she's still managing to sell out shows in this theater. You know, doing yeah. her little her little performance, and somehow Anne Odelia catches wind of Lola Montez. And there's one article that says that she actually met Lola Montez, like in the neighborhood. And Lola Montez was really attracted to kind of her free spirit. Um, but there's, again, there's no proof of that. It, it's very possible that Anne Odelia just read about Lola Montez in the newspaper because she was kind of a, a newspaper darling. They love talking about this, you know, scandalous woman who was married, who was, right. you know, with the king. And well, she's like, interesting. She's interesting. She's really interesting. So why wouldn't you, you know, write about her? And so I, I don't know how it happened, but they, you know, she became aware of Lola Montez. So what did Odelia like see her stories in the paper? And was like, man, I want to be like her. You know what? It's going to be really hard to say no to that because there's a lot of, of what happens with Anne Odelia it, that reflects Lola Montez's life. And then there's actually an even greater connection that you'll see um, coming up. Uh, but she's, yeah, she definitely becomes like this role model at a very young age for Anne Odelia. Uh, it actually even said when her, her father died and shortly after Lola Montez died, that the whole family was mourning her dad and Anne Odelia was mourning Lola Montez, this woman who she might've met once, but idolized <laughs> and had no time for her family, um, but had all the time in the world for, for Montez. Huh. I think it's, yeah. I, you know, we do these in all these stories where we talk about young influences and, and what, you know, these people saw when they were, when they were coming up that led them to what they were. And I think that there's a big part of that. I think that there's, there's been a case for almost everybody that we've covered so far. X, Y, and Z happen when you're a kid. Guess what? <laughs> you got messed up as an adult. <laughs> now we're in uh, the 1860s. And at age 15, Anne Odelia leaves home for a year. And the 15. Are you, how old again? Jesus Christ. The family doesn't hear anything from her, with the exception of one postcard that Anne Odelia sent the family from France. How did she (laughs) get to France? And it said that I have uh, 
Oui, oui, I'm here eating this fine French cuisine. Now she got married while she was there. Yeah. What the fuck? And was married, and that's that's all she said in the postcard is, "I'm writing you from France. I was married. I am married, um, and that that was it. That's it. That's it. And the, yep. Who did she marry? Yep. Uh, and after a, a year of being gone, she just showed up back at home and did not want to talk about anything that happened. Well, how do you not talk about anything that happened? There are so many questions. I think that I think her family had just been through so much shit with her. They were like, "We're you know, if she's going to be stubborn, she'll never tell us if she doesn't want to. So we can ask, but once she starts to stonewall us, we'll just leave it alone." Yeah, I mean, if you pry, you never get that. You're never going right. to get the information anyway. Right. So she. I mean, this is just the pattern with her. She leaves. She comes back. But in 1869, her brother George received a telegram from a hotel in Dayton, Ohio, urging him to come to the aid of his deathly ill sister. She was going by the name Blanche Solomon, which Solomon is actually her real last name. Blanche, she just made up, but this is an alias. Um, At this point, George is, like I said, he's he's onto the charade. So he's like, I don't know if I believe what's going on. She lies all the time. Um, But he gave in anyway. He wrote the hotel back that his sister was a lunatic who always caused trouble for his entire family. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and so it turns out what had happened was shortly after checking in, Anne Odelia collapsed into a spasm on the lobby floor with blood running from her mouth and her nose. Uh, the hotel manager was just horrified. He's like, this woman is having a spasm on the floor and she's bleeding out. Um, so he took her to the room and a doctor was dispatched. Uh, and Odelia said that I'm, I'm dying. I need a priest here as well. So they summon a priest. <laughs> and so while she's in bed, they're waiting for her brother to, to, to travel to Dayton to, to visit. How are you supposed to travel back then? Like get on a horse? There's, train, just... there's trains. <laughs> trains are the way to go at that time. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so like while she's laying there convalescing, there's all kinds of people in the hotel that are like, coming by to see what's going on. Did like, you this say is convalescing? Yes. It's convulsing, right? No, she's not convulsing anymore. She stopped convulsing. She's in bed. What like, does convalescing in... mean? Convalescing is like recovering. Recovering. Healing. Oh, okay. You got all those fancy New York words. <laughs> <laughs> Slow down, Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't speak that, that there North speak. <laughs> <laughs> um so she's in bed and, and all these visitors keep coming by from the hotel and she starts telling them these insane stories about her back. I said it again. These just wild stories that are complete fictions of her adventures and all of her travels all over the world and all these, you know, famous people and lords and ladies and, and, and kings and queens that she's seen. And they're all just really fascinated by it. Um, yeah. So, and, and the priest that came in, had read her the sacrament of extreme unction, which is basically like last rites, like you're you're on your way out because she's you know she's bleeding and it's just not well. Um, to everyone's surprise, Blanche, which is the name that she was going by, suddenly miraculously recovered. The the uh, sus- the physician that was there was really suspicious, so he examined her one more time, and it turns out the blood she splat out wasn't from any sort of seizure. It was actually from a diseased tooth in her mouth, uh, and she would, like, suck blood out of it and spit it out of her mouth. Oh, wow. So nasty. How, how'd she get it out of her nose? 
she I, I don't know if it was actually coming out of her nose. I think she just spit it out and would, you know, That's rub it and things like yeah. that. Yeah. It was all a show, basically. It was not anything wrong. Wow. Um, So the the doctor went to cauterize. That's not even like, I'm not even appalled. That's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) It's gross, though. Like a rotten rotten tooth that you're sucking blood out of. (laughs) Sorry. In school, I used to get uh, sent home because I would say that my nose is bleeding. But what I would really do is bite my cheek and suck the blood out of it. And then like just get it on my finger and like put it on my nose. And then I go get the nurse to call my grandma to come pick me up because I was having a nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't do that, but this is, yeah, this is on par with that. <laughs> Except, she's, you know, and she's, she's doing it for attention. She is also doing it to not pay for her hotel room bills, which she skips out on pretty much. Uh, every that makes ever. sense. Okay. So she's never paid a hotel room. Anyway, doctor goes in to cauterize the tooth and she flips out jumps out of bed, runs away. The, ho- the hotel gets the hotel. The hotels had like investigators. Hotels had their own doctors, investigate. Like they had a whole thing. Wow. Uh, so they, they bring her back to the hotel. Her brother shows up and takes her home. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the end of that. But it's just a really telling how she's doing all of these, it, like acting out and, and willing to fake having a seizure and bleed out yeah. her mouth. Um, and and for yeah to have people come in and settle their debts so what, what was the besides skipping out of the hotel room what was like the point of all that i think it was both attention and the hotel bill you know because okay. she, when she did it she was suddenly the talk of the whole hotel you know gotcha. and so people wanted to know what it was and so she could lie to them i mean lying is her like art form she gets off on fooling these people yeah. basically yeah and at this point i was thinking you know like at this point in the research, I'm thinking maybe she just wants attention. She was the youngest, like her father was gone. Maybe there's some daddy issues once again. But as the story goes, I'm like, no, I'm not going to give her that benefit of the doubt. I, I don't. I don't <laughs> think she deserves it. I really, I really don't. I think that she's she's got a lot of sinister motivations, um, you know. And it, it definitely goes way past just seeking attention. Okay. Um, so a year later, George gets another telegram from a hotel in Montreal, once again claiming that his sister was sick and if he could please come at once. Before he could answer, there was another telegram from the same hotel stating that his sister had skipped out on the bill. He responded that they should do whatever they deem necessary to his sister and to leave him and the family out of it. Oh, so wow. He so he's completely given up hope at this point. At that point, yeah. I mean, he was, you know... I think they've been fooled so many times. He just completely cut her out. Yep. And the family does not come back up again until quite a few years later. So, I mean, there, there's a hard disconnect there where his family's like, we don't want anything to do with her anymore. Hard to blame him. Yeah, it is. And that really doesn't happen during this time period. Right. Because I feel like a lot of people like hold family sacred. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so it's also during this that she's become, she's, become used to fineries and and like she's she loves uh the best clothing the best jewelry she only wants to stay at the best hotels when she's in a boarding house she has help you know she's maids and and the servants to wait on her and food this woman loves food and it just consumes a lot of food and every and i think it's a little fat shamey so i don't want to dwell on it but everything i read in the newspaper talks about how big this woman got 
over the course of her life. And so she's only about five foot two. And I think um, at her peak, she was around 290 pounds. So she was a, she was a big lady. And that was part of like her appeal. Like people would see her and she was like a real presence when she came into a room. She uh, now at this point dons her next character her next alias, her, her, you know, her family's out of the picture. So she's got to figure out, they can't come and bail her out anymore. She's got to figure out how to, how to do this, how to get the hustle on by herself. So now she takes on this personality, this character of royalty in exile. She became the rumored daughter of Lola Montez and King uh, Wilhelm of Prussia, which is the King of Bavaria. Wow. Okay. So, she, so she's the bastard of a king, basically. Yep. She says that she's, and there were rumors that, that Lola Montez maybe had a child with the king, but you know, she's really playing into those. Um, she is now Princess Aditha Lolita Montez, and she took on her mom's, her mom quotes titles, the Baroness of Lansfeld. So that's, that's a mouthful. Let me do that again. Princess Aditha Lolita Montez, the Baroness of Lansfeld. Now that she's a princess, she starts to see these young men of, of means and starts to use these men for their money, basically. You know, she's, she's sleeping with them or she's telling them things that, hey, you know, unfortunately, all of my money is locked up in Europe. Can you please, you know, help me with these expenses and to pay this thing? And these guys do it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. That feels like such a lie. <laughs> like, I feel like I'd see through that immediately. Yeah, I, it, it's hard to believe. I think it's just a, a comment on how good she was, because some of the things that I'm reading, I'm like, how could anybody fall for that? But it's <laughs> there's no way of vetting it. You know, there's no internet. It's 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 not very easy. And it, you know, if it, if you sell the lie, and people believe it, it's it's con men. That's a con men. That's that's ah, classic. What it is. It's like you say it. You you have a. I think there's an eight six sense about these people that like can sense it in certain people and they know who to avoid and who to talk to. And I think that that's really important. And that's something you can't, you can't ascribe to. It's just a, it's a, it's a, uh, Spidey songs. Yeah. It's an ability <laughs> that some people have and some people don't. So how far does she get with this? Like just to con in the con mint con. Well, hold on. Let me start over. Was it just to con people into paying like for certain expenses or yeah. so is she, there a greater I, goal? I think her goal is to get herself in the upper crust of society, like to make her mark and to be able to be in certain circles, you know, and because if she's in certain circles, she can target rich people and try to steal their money. Okay. That's really what it is. But you have to kind of work your way up. And so in doing that, she meets uh, a pair of sisters. Uh, one is named Victoria Woodhill, and her sister is Tennessee Claflin. And they had opened a stock investment office in New York, financed by the, the country, I think maybe even the world at this point's wealthiest man, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, of the, of the Vanderbilt fortune. Um, I mean, he just was crazy, crazy rich. But he had a lot of mistresses, and Victoria and Tennessee were two of his mistresses, but Victoria became um, sort of a confidant because she was sleeping with all of these other men and getting stock tips from them. And then she'd give them to Cornelius Vanderbilt and he <laughs> would invest in them and he would make even more money. And he thought that she was like a financial genius and she might've been really savvy. So he said, I want you to open up um, a, a stock investment office and I'll help pay for it. Huh. 
And so he also, um, at the same time, she convinced him to um, start a new, well, she convinced him to fund a newspaper that she was writing. And at first the newspaper was about stock investing. And then later sort of became more and more radical politics, which is kind of wild when you think about like Vanderbilt was very conservative and now he's paying, you know, publishing a paper by these two sisters who were, you know, talking about communism and all this other very, very far left stuff that he wouldn't have ever approved of. Yeah. And this is like 1800s conservative. Yeah. 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 And I mean, this is is very different than 2021 conservative. Uh, so Vanderbilt rewarded him with the the office, um, and somehow Anne Odelia had managed to cross paths with Vanderbilt at some point during all of this. And like I said, it's I mean, this might jump back and forth a little bit, and I apologize for that. This is all just coming from newspapers, and there's it's a lot I got to kind of fill in the blanks on some of the stuff. But she claims to have been one of his mistresses. There is absolutely no proof of that. There's no even gossip. I don't think that that happened, but I think somehow she you know, got in front of him at, at some point. And he decided that, you know, actually it's probably a better idea if he met with Victoria Woodhill and her sister, Tennessee uh, Claflin. And so she goes to pay them a visit. Um, also, I just thought this was weird and so telling. Vanderbilt, um, when he was 19 years old, he married his first cousin and they had 13 children. Were the kids okay? Like, did they come out quote unquote normal or... <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know if the kids of the super wealthy ever come out normal. <laughs> and then I think if you add to that a little bit of cousin fucking, you're like, well, <laughs> this is why there's so many weird rich people. Yeah, that I mean, it definitely it still it, it happens. It still yeah. happens today. There's uh, a couple in Lakeland that are first cousins, and it's really icky. It's gross. Oh God. Yeah, everybody knows. It's, it's real weird. It's real weird. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, it ain't like it's my sister. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> uh, so, Anodelia is told to go visit these two sisters, and rather than to see them as kindred spirits, uh, she barged in to their office and demanded either a job or money as she was in dire straits and would have to revert to prost- to being a prostitute if she did not receive their help. Did, did they tell them who tell her who gives a fuck? <laughs> I think they were a little taken aback. It does seem like she does like a lot of barging into offices. Just and the things. audacity <laughs> to go in somewhere for like, give me money. Right. So she said that she could do a couple of things, but um, that she had been a journalist that worked at a paper called Druggist's Price Current, which is like a trade newspaper for uh, pharmacists. Um, in, but actually, she had tried to get a job at that paper under the name Claudia de Arvi. She had said she was an experienced writer and a reporter, but the editor saw through her right away and said he that she was, quote, the greatest imposter and swindler that ever walked on two legs. So, I mean, he got wise to her right away. And so now she used this failed um, job interview as a, she pretends that it's an actual job that she had. The okay. sisters, they weren't really sure about that. They didn't think that she was, you know, had the chops to be a journalist and write about the kind of things that they, that they wanted to, you know, to write about. But they thought, hey, this is interesting. And they did believe her that she was a princess and that she was Lola Montez's illegitimate daughter. These are people, people making financial decisions and they believe that lie? Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. They were taking her at her word. They, they, you know, I don't think that they saw that she had any reason to lie about that. I think 
people were more trusting then too. I think here now, if someone came in and said, I'm the daughter of a princess or daughter of a, you know, exiled king and his mistress, he'd be like, I don't know about that. I think we're all a little bit more cynical. <laughs> and I think it's because of people like Anne Odelia that we are. Right. Um, so they believe that she would actually be better value uh, to the women's right movement. And they introduced her to these leading members of this club called uh, Cirrhosis, which is, it, it's, was a bunch of women who were interested in literature and politics. And they, they very wealthy, well-to-do women who wanted to kind of have a voice in, in politics, which obviously wasn't a big thing at yeah. the time. She wanted, they, they asked her if she would be interested in hosting a speech, equality for women and the wrongs of her distinguished mother. And they're like, this woman is a princess. Her mom was done really dirty. Like she should be able to talk about women's equality. Right. right? This speech, Dalton, was a disaster. <laughs> Absolute disaster. Anna Delia was completely unprepared. And instead of writing notes or rehearsing a speech, she just wanted to rely on her ability to make things up on the fly. Um, one of the magazines or one of the newspapers, the New York Tribune, said the next day, and I quote, cirrhosis, which she said was muchly represented there, did wrong in excluding men from their meetings. Men were the mainstays of the social fabric and should be treated as such. A violent anthema was pronounced on extravagant dress. She alluded to her train as a piece of damnation and resolved never to wear it again. She had a suit of clothes which she was going to endow her body with in the morrow. She had shorn her hair and her Best endeavors were being made to kill the characteristic sin of women, vanity, all begging the audience to dissect her, cut her, and finally solemnly adjourning those to not spare her. She was young, but to respect her mother's memory, whose wrongs had made her virtues. Princess Editha retired. So she got up there and everybody was like, yes, feminism, you're going to talk about it. And she's like, no, women should rely on men. And it's ridiculous that they dress in nice clothes. And why do they wear makeup? And why do they have hair like this? These are all things that are in excess. And I'm sure everybody in the audience is like, that's not what this was supposed to be about. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so what did the sisters say? So the sisters were... They they were horrified um, that this had happened, and they sort of at that point they were like, "We don't think this person's very stable. We're going to get our distance." And so they they, they fade out a little bit. Um, you know, she's she's made all the papers though. Everybody's talking about this speech, and a lot of people are in attendance. And and actually, what's funny is before she just left the stage, she thanked everybody in attendance for paying a dollar per ticket to see her speech. You know, because she's making money off of it. So it's just like craven, craven greed. Um, the, the New York Herald, another newspaper, said that the lecture had been wild and incoherent, her gesticulation furious, and her general deportment border on the insane. Again, calling her insane. <laughs> Not long after that, she was brought to police headquarters because the hotel that she'd been staying at, which was called the Astor House, was accusing her of owing $76. Uh, she claimed that Victoria Woodhill and Tennessee Claflin were her bankers and were holding on to tens of thousands of dollars, plus even more in jewelry. So the investigators were like, okay, well, we'll just go talk to your bank then. You say you have all this money, we'll talk to them, they'll give us the money. Oh no, why would you say that? Yep, so so, so they go uh, and check with the sisters and Anna Delia was confronted again while being because they the sister said no she doesn't have a bank account here she doesn't have any of that money 
you have to go talk to her. So the investigators go find Anne Odelia. When they start questioning her, she fell on the ground and started having another seizure. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) So two weeks after that, she has hired an attorney to sue the sisters for the theft of three solitaire crown diamonds set in a gold ring that she said was worth $3,000 and an additional $1,000 in cash. How is she supposed to prove that? So, so this is a pattern that's going to really start to emerge. And unlike anybody else we've talked to, talked about up until this point, she actually uses the legal system or tries to use the legal system and the police against people that she pretends have done her wrong. So how are the sisters, because you don't have technology back then, how, like there's no receipts for anything, like how there's do you... Books. There's book, you, know, you have bookkeeping, you have to keep records of everything. Okay, but like the sisters could easily, or she could easily say they just didn't write it down. Right. And like, how are you supposed to uh, combat that? Well, I, I, I mean, not being a legal expert, I think who do you who do you rely on? Do you rely on this wealthy, you know, banker, this institution that you know is in theory following these guidelines, or do you you know trust this princess who? <laughs> You know, the supposed princess who just wandered into town and oh, starts yeah. making wild accusations. So I, I don't know for sure, but I think that it's, I think it's probably pretty obvious once you talk to both parties, kind of who just, it's like trial. You have two parties, they testify, what's the most believable? Yeah, um, I better get to knowing a little bit about trial. I'm on jury duty pretty soon. Not, I'm not getting yeah. off any other tangents. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think, I think it's funny that she always, and this is going to happen over and over again, where she wants to sue people uh, for no reason. Like she makes up the reason that she sues them or she goes into the police and says, you need to arrest them. And the police are like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not what we're going to do. Do you think she, in her brain that it made sense? That, like, yeah, what, I do, but it never works. It literally doesn't work. At, at any point where she goes and sues someone, um, it, it just none. It never works, but she keeps doing it over and over and over again. And I'm like, late. I, I, I think it that she tries to. She's trying to like fake legitimacy. Yeah, you know, like a court case is going to be legitimate, right? There'll be documents. There'll be the newspapers will cover it. And so, if I sue them for this exorbitant amount of money, people are going to order. Well, maybe there's some truth behind that. Hmm. that's just my guess i i, I don't know so far from what i've heard i think that like maybe she's one of those liars i'm you've probably met one of like one of these types of people too but like whenever they lie they make themselves believe the lie and therefore to them it's not a lie like they're they think they're telling the truth and you're like no no it's right. not true they're so deep in it that they just they have no idea right um so in the in the trial where they, they um, because Anna Delia is arrested for owing the seventy six dollars, she's a lawyer. He doesn't last long, so then she's left to defend herself, um, which is never a good idea. Yep, and it was just a who's who. Like the sisters testified. A lot of the women that were involved with the club that had her speak testified against her. They're just <laughs> saying that this woman is completely unstable and she lies about everything that you shouldn't be trusted. As it turned out, the judge in the case had been at the speech when of course he was Odelia had a had a complete weirdo moment on stage, and so he dismissed the case and but he ordered that Anne Odelia be taken to Hanneman Homeopathic Institute for her mental illness. So the judges said, 
she, she's mentally ill. She needs help. Well, so it's actually more progressive thought than I would expect from the 1800s. Yeah, there's, again, this is like peak institutionalism. You know, like people get institutionalized for a lot less than you would think that they would need to prove that they're having mental issues. But I would think that like, if I were to assume uh, what somebody, what a judge in the 1800s would do, like, oh, well, put her in jail, just lock her up, put her her on those cell bars. And instead he took her somewhere that would maybe try to help her. Yeah, no, and I think that's good. And I think we've moved away from that because we don't have a lot of these institutions around anymore. Everything we do in jail. Yeah. There were no mental institutions. And now there's a lot of questionable stuff that happened in these institutions. I'll, I'll give you that. A lot of weird experimentation with people that was bad. But yeah, we've definitely moved away. Like everything is, is, is it's now a penal system. Or yeah, I've been uh, in various times of my life locked up. And there's definitely people in jail that should not be in jail that should yeah. definitely be in a mental institution. And yeah. it's sad. It's sad to it see. Really, it really, really is. Right, so she so she gets to the hospital, and the doctor has an account of her stay while she's in this hospital. Um, now, mind you, this is a hospital; it's not a mental institution. She's just at the at the hospital undergoing treatment to to see if they can figure out what's going on with her. This is from her doctor's observations about when she got there. <laughs> Early in December of 1870, she appeared at the Hanneman Hospital with a letter from Dr. Zelinsky addressed to me requesting that the Princess Editha Lozala Montez, daughter of the famous Lola Montez and the King of Bavaria, should be admitted for treatment. The statement being made that she was suffering from a a hemorrhage of the lungs. At that time, she was a well-built woman, about 25 or 27. She was actually 20. And quite good-looking. Why does the doctor need to talk about how good-looking she is? (laughs) This is weird. (laughs) And also well-built is like, she's a big girl. Um, the first night in the hospital, she was taken with a fit, and this was followed by other ones in such rapid succession that I became suspicious. Blood oozed from her mouth during these fits, but it was evident that it was not the kind produced by a hemorrhage. During one of these fits, I tried to open her mouth gently, but she would not have it. I consequently pried it open and found that instead of coming from a hemorrhage of the lungs, the blood was being industriously sucked out of a decayed tooth cavity. Wow, that's... Okay. She did it all over again. Same trick, different audience. When you say decaying tooth cavity, it sounds a little bit more gross than... Well, I think between the last time and this time, the tooth came out. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's that would be my, my guess. Um, so the doctor uh, concluded at that point that there was no medical explanation behind the seizures and that she was faking them. Once she was confronted with this information, her fits magically stopped. She knew that the doctors were onto it, so she stopped. <laughs> uh, but now that she's in this hospital, she goes nuts. She ran wild. She's smoking opium, which is a popular prescription for like easing pain. That's basically and, and heroin, medicine. right? It is heroin, yeah. But it was before we knew what heroin really was, and we knew that it could be abused. They were handing it out as a medical remedy. Oh, Okay. Uh, but she was also abusing other patients. Uh, she, at one point, managed to set two mattresses on fire. And they had to subdue her. They could only do that with uh, chloroform. So, oh, Jesus Christ. 
because she is strong and this is something that you're going to see like she is she's a tough bird and this is she, five foot 300 pound woman yeah, throwing a couch at you exactly i don't know if she, she, she wasn't 300 yet but she was a solid 200 pounds and she's just like she i mean she doesn't mess around she'll she will punch you if that's what she thinks she needs to do like you know what she, good for her i know she's, she's, she's a bad woman i mean like she she don't mess around uh, so she's put down on, on chloroform. She woke up and went crazy again. And apparently the room that she was in, she destroyed every piece of furniture. Just absolutely <laughs> crazy. Destroyed every piece of furniture. So doctors and aides responded and they had to come in and try to strap her down to a bed. Fuck and that. <laughs> I, I know. I was like, I wouldn't want anything near her. I would like leave her alone, especially sharp objects. Um one young French student who whose name was Paul Massant, who was helping strap her down, apparently as he did, he fell madly in love with Anne Odile. <laughs> Ow! So, I don't know. It's a little unclear. Um, the, but uh, and we'll, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Paul Massant in a minute. But yeah, he's just this young French student at the hospital, and he falls in love with her. He sees her, and it's just like this is the woman of my dreams. Maybe you know? it's, maybe it has to do with the French. Maybe it like be. The, the, be. the French people just can't resist her. I don't know. This is very possible. <laughs> he, there's a lot with him too. Uh, there's 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 some this just some parts of this story. I'm like, this is not real. This doesn't happen. <laughs> like, can you can you see it in a movie where she's like probably swearing and saying all kinds of horrible things? They're trying to strap her on a bed, and this guy's just like, oh, oh mademoiselle, <laughs> mon, mon, mon chéri. <laughs> there went all of our French audience. <laughs> yeah, so I can actually say she just listened and goes, je t'aime, mon petit chou. <laughs> I love you, my little cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have been told is an actual flattery in French, but someone could be lying to make me look dumb. That's, that's okay. I said the same okay things in my coleslaw last night. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Anatili was told that if she continued to behave the way that she was, the doctors would have no other choice than to put her in a gag and a straitjacket. So as soon as she hears that, she gets free from whatever restraints that she's in. She managed to get out of them, runs out of where the room that she's in, goes into the dining hall and grabs a giant carving knife from the dining hall and starts attacking the orderlies and the doctors. Versus women today, they'd be like, oh, word? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so she starts attacking them. She cuts her doctor really badly. And she actually cuts the French guy, the the French student who loves her, under the eye pretty severely um, and just slices him up. So they um, they eventually, you know, obviously get her settled, and it doesn't seem to deter uh, Paul Massant at all. Like he just got sliced up in the face. He's still madly <laughs> in love with this woman. It happens and, to the best of us. Yeah, and like I, I guess he develops this really gnarly scar underneath his. I think it's underneath his left eye. And that was like, badass. Something. He, but he's just like lit blindly in love with her. He was almost blinded because a couple inches more, and she'd have gotten his eye. But she's just he's just smitten over this woman. Um, and then he actually helps her escape the hospital what <laughs> yep so Masson gets her out of the hospital wow, and left turn. helps yeah no he's like he's like you cut me open now let's get you out of here because i love you more than anything <laughs> yeah he managed to like he they were putting together paperwork to have her transferred to another facility and he like the paperwork mysteriously disappears because they think Masson took it so anyway he he gets her out 
he comes back to the, the hospital. They know it was him that helped her escape. And so they get him and kind of use him as bait to get her to come back. <laughs> Why would he go back? Because I guess he was just trying to, it's unclear. I, my guess is that he was just trying to keep up the the image of like, oh, this is my job. This is, everything's normal. I had nothing to do with that. She just got out. You know, I'm going to, but I don't know. It's it, like I said, it's kind of unclear. So when she gets back, <laughs> they are like, you're too crazy for the hospital. We're going to send you to an insane asylum a proper insane asylum. So they send her to an insane asylum on Blackwell Island in New York. So she, this is all in New York City. Sure. She gets sent to Arkham. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so Blackwell Island actually today, I mean, it exists. It's still an island here. It is called Roosevelt Island. But in the day, back in the day, one thing that's, I think, interesting and kind of terrible about New York City is that there's more than just, there's a lot of little islands that you don't hear about. And Roosevelt Island is one of those. There's a few more. There's like Rikers Island, which is a jail. But we're really, as a city, we love putting institutions and jails on islands. They're not close. That sounds really problematic. Honestly, a little bit. Um, You know, completely away from other civilized life. And right, right. So you usually see. So in like Roosevelt Island, there was an sailor asylum. There was a prison. And there was a hospital, you know, those were like the three big things on the island. And, um, the, you know, very famous um, diseases were housed there. Like it was the first small, smallpox outbreak. They put them in a hospital on Roosevelt Island to kind of keep them away from everybody. Okay, that, I mean, that makes more sense. Right. But the, it is like unwashed people, you know, the, the sick, the mentally ill and the criminal, we don't want to see. So put them on an island. Ugh, don't like that. Yeah. Well, now, I mean, Roosevelt Island is not like that anymore people live there it's a it's a nice it's a nice little strip well, how do you get back and forth to it you, there is a there's two things you can take a train a subway to get there because it's right in between queens and manhattan it's like a little sliver of an island or there is a um it's not a zip line it's like a, like a go- <laughs> well, no, it's, what? no it's like a go- <laughs> it's oh god i can't remember what it's called it's like a gondola like it's it's on a wire and it runs like a ski down. lift it's a tramway. That's what they call it. Okay. Yeah, and you get in this little car and you go over a wire and they drop you off in there. Do they have yeah. cars there? Like, how do you get cars? Onto yeah, you the can. T- there's also a bridge that'll get you there. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so you're there's ways to get there, but it's it's a nice little. It's cute. It's but they all have plaques for the old institutions and everything that were there. Um, so she's in an insane, insane asylum, and now I want to talk, like I promised, about. Paul Massand. So people, at least a couple of the authors that I've read, don't even think that he was a medical student. That they, they don't have records of who he, like who he was or why he was there, that they think that like this is a little suspicious. And it kind of, it's, it's possible that he had met Anodelia because they ran in some of the same political circles in New York and they were about the same age. And so they thought maybe he had met before and he somehow came in and plotted to, to get her out of the hospital this whole time. Oh, the plot thickens. Okay. But the other theory and the one that I really like that has also no basis of, of proof is that he had something to do with her being married in France when she was 15. Well, it is an awfully big coincidence that this French right? student happened to be working at the same asylum when she married a French person all those years ago. Yep. I kind of like that, that this may have been the same guy that she was married to, you know, when she yeah. was 15. Uh, and now that he, you know, they'd kept in contact and kept in social circles and he's coming. That makes so much more sense than somebody like madly falling in love with someone while they're trying to restrain them. 
Right. I, they, I, I think they definitely knew each other. Now, whether he was the, the person that she had met in France originally or just someone that she knew in New York, um, I don't know which one that is. But right. if this was a movie, it would definitely be the, the guy that she ran away to meet in France when she was 15. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, you know what? I'll, that's my head cannon now. Yep. That's, I think that should be the show. That's the official stance of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why was she caught him then? If, there's a lot of question mark. There's going to be more questions than answers if they did this thing. Okay. And was it to keep up the act? Did he know it was coming? I don't know. You know, like, did she say, I'm going to cut you because I want it to look believable when yeah. you break me out of here? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe. I mean, that's a that's such a like sociopathic, wild way of thinking, but it does line up. <laughs> you know, I don't know what that says about me. I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'm, I'm like, hey, I think of this. And you're like, yeah, I agree with that. So I think it's mutual. I think there's maybe something wrong with both of us. Um, <laughs> so while she's in Blackwell's Island, she's under constant uh, evaluation. And the doctor's there pretty sure very quickly they, they come to the conclusion that she's not insane that the, that the knife attack was deliberate and she knew exactly what she was doing and she's known exactly what she's been doing this entire time like they're observing her and she kind of you know observes them and she's like repeating things that she thinks they want to hear and and they, they catch wise to it you know there's not a whole lot of people in the story that catch on to what she's doing or how, how she does it but these doctors do and so they say we can't hold her because we don't think that she's you know she's medically impaired or she's you know reason of right. insanity so they have to let her go because now this was a, a criminal act not you know an act of an insane person and she's never gone to trial. She's never been arrested. She can't stay in the asylum, so they let her go. All right, she's not crazy. She's just a fucking lunatic. What? She's a lunatic, <laughs> yeah. right. right. I mean, she's a, she's a criminal psychopath, not a, not crazy. And since there was no trial, they just have, they'd let, they have to let her go. So she's free. <laughs> Are you serious? Yep. <laughs> oh, well, all right. <laughs> yeah, kind of, a, kind of a loophole there uh, that, that wouldn't happen today. Um, right. So shortly after she's out of the asylum, uh, she marries Paul Masson. What a and, coincidence. Yeah, what a coincidence, right? And they take off on a tour of Europe. And so, assumably, Massant is paying for all of this because, you know, she's they're, they're living it up in all these years. How places. is this young medical student affording all of this? Again, unsure. Maybe family money. It's possible that he had oh, yeah. some. You know, he's, it's not, I mean, he wasn't really a medical student. So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's yeah, not very this, much about this guy. She's not, she's trying to scam her way into millions of dollars. She's not going to marry yeah. some like peasant. No, she's not going to target somebody. And he's definitely was a target. Like, he's an accomplice, but he's a victim. And he's a target of her. Right. She locked into him and said, you're going to help me. And so I'm sure he's got some means of some sort um, that she wants to exploit. And this poor guy is just, like, smitten over here. Yep. Well, so they, they go to Europe. They eventually come back to the States. And when they come back to the uh, States, Massant's health suddenly takes a terrible turn for the worse. And he dies at 28, Aww. less than a year after they had come back to the States from their big honeymoon. That's unfortunate. That is unfortunate. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about foul play. I was going to get there. I, I think I think she killed this guy. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> it talks, and, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of this, but she is a pretty good chemist at this point from growing up in her dad's workshop and, and messing around with chemicals and just learning about 
different different formulas and the fact that they have on people, which includes poison. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely some of that. And and she uses this later in life to kind of manipulate, help manipulate people. She, you know, like she's, it's, it's, a, it's wild, but there's very little in me that doesn't think that she poisoned this guy. Well, my next question is, was there a life insurance policy at play or... I don't think so. I'm not sure. I think she was just done with him. Like, you know, amateur whatever. hour. God, you got to have him signed up for a life insurance <laughs> policy first. What are you doing? It's to come. I think she's like the forebearer of a lot of this stuff. You know, like, <laughs> I think she's figuring a lot of this stuff out that other people, you know, she's walking so that other grifters can run. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's, he's dead. And she immediately sets about trying to either frame or extort the physician that Paul Massant was working for. So she says, this is your fault that he died, that he got sick because he was working in your hospital. And so she... Um, Does she sue for malpractice? Well, she, no, she says, she's like, you know, you fired Paul and this is all your fault and because you fired him, he eventually died. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but she wrote him a letter telling him that she was, quote, having some uh, vitriol prepared for you. A week hence, I shall return and take pleasure in throwing it in your face. This doctor, this, I love this doctor. He writes back, writes back to her and goes, you will find a bullet crashing through your skull when you enter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, and I, I just, I left that in because not only is it a great line and a, like, a, like a threat, like it just goes nuclear immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's because I think that she's just so horrible and rotten that people really don't want any part of her. Like, they just are like, you're a piece of shit. And if you come here, I'm going to shoot you. Like, that's right. just the measure of the type of person that she is. Like, for this doctor, this physician. Who, right. Rather put know, a bullet in her head than to deal with her. He's threatening to kill someone. Like, that's right. against the Hippocratic Oath. Like, that's a, that's, that's huge. <laughs> Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> you think they were taking the Hippocratic Oath in, in 1840s? No, it's, 18, it's almost 1900. This is 18, oh, okay. Yeah, this is the late 1800s. Okay, okay. We're a little bit farther along then. Yeah, we're, we're moving. We're grooving. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's bizarre to me that, that she's able to bring that sort of, you know, reaction out of people who would normally, you wouldn't think would react like that. Yeah. So I, I think that, that that's a lot. Um, she dropped it. She left him alone. She was oh, like, yeah. I'm not getting shot in the head. <laughs> yeah, this dude means it. <laughs> yeah. So again, like we said, up until that time, the main grift is been finding rich young men and luring them under the guise of being a princess in distress. But after all of this goes down in New York, she moves to Baltimore and she really hits her stride there. She gets, uh, she, she is in Baltimore and she gets a glowing article in a paper announcing her arrival in the city. Um, and some of the, some, yeah, I know she, she's, she can convince people to write these things about her. So some of the bullshit from that article is while in New York, this is she invents this whole background and this is this is from the article while in new york she was abducted taken to paris and afterward placed in the in a convent in the black forest of germany while prisoner there she succeeded in forwarding serendipitously to paul m de massant editor of the paris lantern letters which she published in that journal um de massant became much interested in the brilliant correspondence and arranged a plan for her escape goes on that she had four children, three were dead, one was in school in France, and it also says the Countess, it is understood, is not yet 30 years of age. She's a lady of education and culture and highly accomplished. She draws and paints remarkably well and is brilliant and agreeable conversationalist. Mm -hmm. She spends this whole, like, 
my dead husband was actually a famous doctor who wrote for a newspaper <laughs> and he rescued me from this convent in the black forest of Germany and after being abducted and then she's very much single and willing to mingle it's kind of the, the, <laughs> this is like the TLDR. Tinder. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> i don't know why i said it like that but uh th- see that's why i believe all lies so like based on like little grain of truth because she took all of that lie was based around him being a medical student yeah she just weaved everything around it oh there's a lot for uh, having four children three were dead well she was one of four and yeah the three were dead to her her three brothers and sisters are dead to her oh wow okay i didn't think about that that's yeah she's good yeah she's good and then you know she talks about france which she obviously has run off to at least once before yeah you know black force in germany that was part of you know her supposed father's kingdom it's really it's all woven in there you know, and I think maybe that makes it easier for either her to believe or for her to remember. Well, yeah, you can take the, all those little itty bitty hints of truth and like you can make a believable story out of it and something that you won't get lost. Like when you're telling your lie to somebody else. That, But at the same time, that doesn't even seem to matter with her. Like she says such opposite crazy bullshit to different <laughs> people, like at the same time that it just doesn't even... It's not even a thing that she's all that worried about, which I think is also interesting. Um, So in turn, wealthy single men in Baltimore were lined up at her door. They absolutely wanted a piece of this. Hello there, ma'am. Give them the to you. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. All of them wanted to marry her. Um, You know, um, oftentimes the princess would find herself blocked from drawing any money from her great fortunes overseas and have to ask for money from these well-to-do bachelors uh so yeah that's the line um all told the estimate that she was able to grift from all of these young men was close to a quarter million dollars in 1800s money mm-hmm. oh my god that is that's insane yeah apparently one of the men um turned over almost two hundred thousand dollars alone before his family intervened and said, no, this, this woman is a fraud. Oh my God. That poor guy. Yeah. So the police eventually uh, detained her. And while in, while in custody, she smoked so much opium that she had to be hospitalized for nervous exhaustion. So she overdosed basically. Yeah. She overdosed on heroin. (laughs) I don't know if she actually really did or not. I think this is like the next iteration of her falling on the ground, having a seizure. (laughs) smoking way too much opium but i thought it was kind of funny but at the same time i believe that she would smoke too much opium yeah that's true she definitely smokes it quite a bit throughout this this whole throughout her life really um so once she's in police custody none of these rich families they're too embarrassed so none of them press charges so she gets out and just goes scot-free jesus christ when are they gonna lock this woman up I know they can't get her. They can't get her. You know, she targets the rich people. They don't want to be in the press as their dumbass son got tricked by this fraud <laughs> princess. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. It's like, well, I don't want to admit that I raised an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's it. I mean, they just they, she keeps getting away with it over and over again. This about this time, she meets a gentleman named General Joseph H. Disdebar. Um, he, he wasn't very wealthy and he didn't have a very high position in society, but being the wife of a quote unquote general would do wonders for her place in society. Um, he's not a general. Somehow that title, 
got bestowed upon him and he uses it he was not he was never a general um, well how do you get that title what what are you gonna do what are you gonna, you gonna google him oh yeah that's true this <laughs> is way before stolen valor was a thing <laughs> it gets an army surplus store <laughs> right yeah so at the, she now says that um she's married him uh, and that she takes her name, which is the name that she's most prominently known as, which is Anne Odelia Distabar. Uh, so he's also, the other thing that's interesting that comes into play is he's, he does a lot. He's actually a, a pretty accomplished man in his, in his younger days. Uh, he did a lot. He designed the seal for the state of West Virginia that we still use to this day. He oh, wow. Good, yeah, he was a pretty good artist. He, he um, did, drew a lot of portraits and actually managed to uh draw two portraits with abraham lincoln like abraham lincoln sat with him and he he did two portraits of him so okay that's really cool it's really cool the guy actually is very interesting i'm i'm not sure what his state of mind was at this stage in his life because it definitely feels like she moved in he was he was older and she kind of takes advantage of him she'll take money yeah need. yeah so they well even and even though they're not married uh she gets pregnant by him and has a little girl named this old uh, fucker. Yeah, I thought he'd be shooting blanks by now. <laughs> nope. Nope. Alice uh, is the name of his littlest or their, their first daughter. Um, and eventually she and Odelia will change her name to Lola for no reason. She just starts mm. calling her Lola, but her name is Alice. So she's already assigning her daughter's aliases before they even know what's going on. Well, she, I think she's just trying to name her after her idol. Yeah, that's what it sounds like anyway. Yeah, well, and, and, yeah, until she has more children. <laughs> so it's also should be noted that during this entire time, Joe Distabar was married with a family in West Virginia. Uh, so he had his he had an entire family. So Jesus that's why Christ. they were never actually married. He was cheating on his wife. And so he had two families set up. Eventually, his wife discovered the mistress, kicked him out. And he settled with Anodelia. So then I mean, we were just talking about the second daughter. They had a second daughter named Juliet. And Anodelia doesn't refer to her as Juliet. She refers to her as Dodo. What the fuck does Dodo mean? I don't know. It's just, so she's got Lola, whose name is Alice, and Dodo, whose name is Juliet. Those are her two daughters. <laughs> you will be named after this wonderful dancer who has traveled the world, the mistress to kings, and you are a flightless bird. <laughs> uh so I, we're going to start to get into kind of like a lot more of her swindling and she's done like a little little stuff up till now baltimore was a big a big run for her but i want to read you again from the biography empress of swindle uh and odelia swindled the rich and powerful because that were, was where the best picking were but she had no compunction in soaking those who were not at all rich. A stable worker, a small boarding house proprietor, a dentist, a buggy driver, a servant, a child on the street. Anyone who had anything that she wanted or stood in her way was a target. And her games with her intended victims often turned violent. Drugs and poisons were not absent from her repertoire. And not just for disposing of inconvenient French or German husbands, but also simply for creating violent distractions or periods of drugged torpor in intended victims, cowing them into submission and turning aside their defenses, during which time she could pilfer their money or jewels or set the scene for spirit activities. Spirit activities. 
That's what's coming. We're coming into a whole different level of grift here. Oh yeah. So she, there's a story about like her uh, being at like a a function with a a couple of women who were really well off and she served them tea. The tea made them both very, very sick in their stomach. And while they were in the bathroom, she stole their wallets. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Um, He also referred to uh, poisoning a German husband. She was, she had a lot of men in her life. I could not find who he was talking about, but the author is implying that not only did she poison Paul Massant, but she there was another husband, quote unquote, that she also poisoned, and I couldn't find him. What? Okay, we're just you got a whole missing husband over here. Yeah, apparently. I mean, <laughs> I think again, you target people that don't have family, or if he's if he's you know his family's in Germany, it's harder to find something in the oh, United yeah. States or know what happened to him. So the spirit activities is a pretty important part of the, the next kind of phase. Uh, over the years, Anadelia had dabbled in hypnotism, but that was becoming a really passing fad. Spiritualism, which is the belief in being able to communicate with dead people, uh, was hot. I mean, it was like the fad right now. It was, it was considered a whole you know, religion onto itself. And as a result, there were plenty of people out to make money from it. So... In, in in the 1880s, which is when we're talking about, there had been, uh, it became harder to be a spiritualist because people were demanding more and more proof. And so in order to be a spiritualist, you had to come up with more and more elaborate schemes to do it. Um, it used to be that you could just do, the, the person who's who was performing the ritual would like fall into a strange trance. There would be like, oh, that's really strange. I believe that there must be, or there would be like a tapping at a table or, you know, like some sort of tapping in the room. Uh, but it had to get a lot more elaborate. And, and some of the ways that they would do it is that they actually would rig these cabinets or these armoires and they would have an actor back there painted up and they have the lights really low in the room. And when they would summon the spirit, they would come out of either from behind curtains or this armoire and pretend to be the relative and speak directly to the person. And it was so low light. They would like, you would prep them and they would believe this or, you know, and then one thing that Anna Delia did because she was very mechanically inclined was to like rig things to move through a room, you know, or like make a, an invention that would throw a plate across the room. And again, these rooms are really dark. So all you see is the plate or you hear it smash against the wall or chairs move on their own. And she would rig these entire rooms like this to fool people. It's really smart. I was about to say, like, that's really sad to me because she's so fucking smart. Yeah. Because, like, she could have been something, like, way greater than this. Oh, yeah. Well, so she also, (laughs) the the other thing that I learned, and I thought this was fascinating, and I have to look into it more, is that there were actually summer camps for all these spiritualists and mediums and readers and they would go to these camps in various cities over the course of the summer and you pay to get in and you mix and mingle and you trade secrets wow okay so, so they'd be like if you do this and this and this you can do this trick and be like oh that's really interesting well you know here's what i do and they would learn about each other's trade wow that's kind of crazy <laughs> to be honest because like that's how you know they're all frauds they're all going to the summer camp oh yeah and- well they all know oh yeah i guess I don't but know. It just feels shameful to me, almost. I, they're making that money. That's, yeah, I don't know. They, that's they know what they're doing, and if they want to get better at it and be more successful in that field, then that's what they do. You know, so that's yeah. It, it, it's it's really it's really kind of wacky. But she is. I mean, I, I would say I could say a lot about her. Dumb is not one of those things. She's oh yeah, she's not stupid. Very very bright woman. 
Um, so I, I wanted to sideline and tell a really quick story about just how she doesn't give a shit about her victims. I mean, besides killing a husband, supposedly, alleged, she's dead. I don't say allegedly. Um, she, one of her clients was a woman named uh, Carolyn Seymour of Newport, Rhode Island. And this woman, surprise, surprise, uh, Anna Delia had found out it inherited $100,000 from her father. Mm. And uh, earlier, her brother, uh, this, this woman, Carolyn Seymour, had left home to pursue his fortune and he never returned. And Odelia performed a seance and wanted to find her brother and see what was going on. Um, and she had gathered a bunch of facts from Carolyn Seymour and from some of her friends. Like she did some reconnaissance, so she felt like she knew more about the brother. She didn't tell anybody this. She then had an associate dress up as uh, Carolyn's brother, right? And they go to a, a dark room and he comes out behind from behind curtains. Oh, no. And he said that he made a fortune in China but he died in the process. It was a terrible accident and he, he died. Um, but the fortune was there waiting to be claimed by someone oh in Carolyn's God. family. So <laughs> Carolyn Seymour uh, hears this and gets very excited and decides to send her son to China to find the fortune. And he dies on the way. And never, yeah, never returns. She has no qualms about any of this stuff. She ended up in the end fleecing $85,000 from Seymour. $85,000 of the $100,000 inheritance. So 85% of her money was gone. Yep. Yep. yep because of this woman. Ugh, it's terrible. Yeah. She, and, and she was nasty. Like I read that passage from the book. She's nasty to everybody. Like there's nobody that's not nice or that she's nice to, not even her husband's, husband's quote. Um, she, there was, she had a 19 year old servant named Kate Goley, uh, who she wasn't paid. Like she didn't pay her servants. She's just having for as long as they wouldn't complain. And then she'd fire and kick him out. So Goley returned to collect the money that she was owed. Um, and Adelia invited her in and a scuffle, like they started to argue and then they started to fight. And, and Odile can throw down. And it was, uh, I wouldn't want to fight her. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. She, she, she'll come to blows and you'll be on the wrong side of that. So in the scuffle, Anne Odelia knocks over a painting, uh, which she says is very valuable. Um, and, it, it's, and then she berated uh, Kate, saying it was her fault. She said, you broke this painting. How dare you break this painting? Get out of my house immediately. So Kate leaves. Um, the painting was probably worth $35, 30 or $35. It was not an authentic painting, but Anna Delia claimed it was a very expensive uh, painting. And so she went to the police and had Kate arrested. Oh, wow. Because she, like, she, she, I mean, Anna Delia bumped into the painting. It was, it was so, broken. Wait, she can get arrested for that, but Anna Delia can't get arrested for unpaid wages? No, because she's convinced of that this this girl broke into her house, and it's it's about who files the charges first and who has the more believable story. Oh, you know? Jesus this, Christ! This girl Kate's like a runaway who's a, a runaway servant. Nobody's going to believe her. Ugh. Now you've got this this woman who is married to a general and is, has this household full of servants that they don't know they're not getting paid. What is the point of laws? <laughs> right. Well, if you want to know something that's going to really make you crazy, what? Do you know how much Kate was owed in back wages? Uh, how much? $25. That's it? Yes. This woman had her, arre- this girl, this Anna Delia had this girl arrested for $25. Uh, 
That's insane. That's that, that just it's shameful. Just the, it's the pettiness that she's got. I mean, she just doesn't give a shit. Ugh, I hate that. Uh, she always owed money all over town. She went from like boarding house to hotel to boarding house to hotel. And it, there's a story about how a sheriff came to uh, collect $150 that she had owed to a grocery firm. And she pulled out a shotgun and threatened him. <laughs> so, and the, the sheriff's like, I'm not getting involved. I'm not doing this. This is a crazy woman with a shotgun in my face. Left the house. <laughs> So the landlord that she was staying with saw this happen and was appalled and uh, kicked and, and kicked the, the family out. So she sought refuge and found another hotel, um, and she set up shop as Madame Caligstro from Persia. And she started claiming that she studied in Persia and spent seven years living with yoga um, adepts under a mountain in Tibet after being abducted from Bavaria as a child. So even though... She's Anne Odelia Distabar. She still every once in a while drops into these alternate personalities for her spiritualism and seances. Such a crazy story. I love it. It's such a crazy story. (laughs) So her services became so so she rented the whole the whole attic of this hotel and she rigged the room and she started, you know, doing her services. Her services, like her seances became so rowdy and so violent with like furniture smashing up against the walls during the seances that the neighbors called a priest to perform an exorcism on the house from outside. They're like, we don't know what's going on, but it sounds nuts. And we know that she is a spiritualist and is having seances. I think Satan is in that house. (laughs) (laughs) So that, that at that hotel, the hotel owner, actually, people started complaining they were staying at the hotel that their belongings were missing. And she was like, it's definitely Anne Odelia. So she goes to confront her about it. And once again, Anne Odelia throws down and they got into a fist fight. <laughs> this, this hotel owner, Anne Odelia. You know what? Even though she's a terrible person, she's evil. She'll throw hands. I respect she her. She'll throw hands. She does a lot. <laughs> So the woman who owned the hotel, her, her, her name was uh, Flo Mayo, Florence Mayo, but she was Flo. So Mayo told Ao to move out. And shortly after that, Anne Odelia swore out a warrant for Mayo's arrest, citing threats to her daughters and concerns for Mayo's son. So she's like, you can't throw me out. I'm going to have you arrested. So how does that work? The hotel owner isn't there anymore. So she, does she have to pay rent? So that it didn't go anywhere. They didn't arrest her. Like she just okay. swore out this. I mean, it's this is like again, like to the beginning, her going to the cops or her going to lawyers is just not going anywhere because she's just making wild shit up, and and eventually people stop believing her. Um. So Mayo asked for an injunction to have uh, Distabar removed from her hotel. A week later, Mayo was hit on the head in the dark on the way to her room. So somebody clubbed her. In her own I hotel. I wonder who. Right? When <laughs> she woke up, this is the fucked up thing, more than getting hit over the head. When she woke up, she was in her bed, but the gas line had been cut and was leaking into her room. Oh, she was going to kill her. She was going to blow up the whole hotel. Yep. <laughs> yep. Or just kill her, I think, is more likely. Um, so Mayo went back to the police, and eventually Anodelia was issued a subpoena. She had to leave the hotel because at that point she wasn't leaving, so Mayo couldn't do anything to get her out. She had to leave for the subpoena. Uh, Mayo changed the locks and said, no, you can't come back in. You're out of here. Eventually, she decided to let her back in to get all of her stuff, you know, threw her stuff out, and that was the end of it. Um, but, she, you know, she, that's just some of the 
shitty things that she does to other people. You know, like if she's threatened at all, she's going to the police. If she feels like she's about to get exposed or she's going to get in trouble with the law, she's a mean, it's, you know what it is? It's you can't fire me. I quit. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. (laughs) You can't arrest me. I'm going to press charges against you. God, she's insane. I know you said that you don't want to call her insane, but she's insane. She's crazy. She's on a different level than just about anybody. Um, I I also say one of the big things that she's done here, and this becomes kind of her big spiritualist thing. So there's, there's a lot of parts to spiritualism, right? There's seances, which is you speaking to the dead, but um, her big thing became spirit paintings. Spirit what? Spirit paintings. So how does that work? What is that? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, So what it is, is that she would say that she's communicating with spirits of artists like Rembrandt or, you know, um, any of the Renaissance artists, Raphael, and she was communicating with them and that they would send her a message via a painting you know, and, and so what she would do is she'd have a blank canvas and she would give it to the person that was there and they were supposed to hold it up to their head and then magically the painting would fill in and it would be still wet and freshly painted. And basically what she would do is she, her husband, uh, husband, the also fake general, it's also fake husband, would be outside the room or in a part of the room concealed painting based on what they're talking about, you know, and, and actually painting a picture. And then as she, she gets the blank canvas and she switches it before she puts it, the, the puts it on their head, you know, like they're. Wow. Hungry. So not only is she a fake spiritualist, not only is she a carn artist, she's also really good at sleight of hand. Yep. She's very good. It's, Dude, it's essential she should doing. have been a magician. Right. Uh. Yeah. So she, she gets that swipe from her and, you know, and then, you know, she's in a trance and she's meditating and she says, look, Oh my goodness, look what has appeared, you know, and they would open up and they'd see this painting and it'd still be wet. And they just were like, Oh my goodness. And so that becomes kind of her calling card is these paintings. That's I'm impressed. (laughs) That's very impressive. She gets caught a couple of times. She's not the best at sight of hands, but she's good enough for the people that she's targeting. Um, there's also some talk about like she would also if when she was feeling bold and if people really wanted to prove it she would either medicate the people that were experimenting so she would do a couple of things she'd turn the lights down sometimes she would like let the gas flow in the room so people got a little sleepy and they would actually have the blank on their foreheads and they would be staring into a mirror she's like if you don't trust me you can see it happening you know, in front of you, and that she would swap the painting at some point. She would say, oh, you're holding it wrong. Let me fix this for you and put it up there. But they're just really drowsy, or they might have some sort of, like, minor poison that she's mixed up for them. And so <laughs> when, they, when, when they come to, they think, oh, my God, I just saw all of that happen in front of me. Like, they don't remember her swapping the painting. They just remember, like, being in sort of a trance and then looking in the mirror and seeing this painting complete, and they totally bought it that's that's <laughs> hats off to her i guess but i know it's, that, it's that's it that's her that's her big spiritual grift see i don't kind of like her so i don't want to give her too big of a compliment but god damn that's impressive it's smart she's really smart and i had actually never heard of spirit painting before i read about her i didn't know about that at all uh, yeah that's the first time i've heard of it either there's there's she also does some slate writing which i had heard of which is pretty much the same thing it's like uh, you have like a blank notebook or a blank slate and it doesn't have anything on it. And then you put it on top of your head 
or you put it against your face and then you take it off and it's done. And that's all sleight of hand. Like there's two identical slates. One has something written on it. One doesn't, you know, that kind of thing. So she, she is very good at the, she's good at the sleight of hand. You know, sometimes she slips up a little bit, but for the most part, the people believe her. Wow. That's, that's, that's impressive. It is. Um, and so we're, we're to 1886 and she's got her next big mark. And this guy, I really like, and I really feel bad for. He's one of the one, one guy that just is like, seems like a really nice guy. And he just crossed paths with this terrible woman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, so his name is Luther Marsh. He is a lawyer, very prominent lawyer in, in New York City. He's very well off. And he had lost both his daughter and his wife about two years before he met Anne Odelia. Oh, poor guy. He was, he had no other close family members. And so he like really sunk back into his own world. He kind of pulled away from the law firm that he worked at. You know, he just became really depressed and didn't leave the house a lot. He became, uh, began idolizing an actress named Adelaide Nielsen, who had died six years before in 1880. And he like built this shrine in his, in his house. And I say house, it was a mansion. It was a very big house uh in in new york and makes the shrine to her and he's just really i mean he's just a very fundamentally sad man and someone like that was looking for answers you know i mean he's he's seeing all these mediums and he's seeing these, these spiritualists and nothing seems to be helping until he meets and this is his name for her quote angel annie oh no Oh no, Brian. <laughs> Run as fast yeah. as you can. Yeah, so she's miraculously instantly able to communicate with his wife and his dead daughter, as well as his who she calls his patron saint, which is that actress, uh, Adelaide Nielsen. And he's just hooked. He is on the train and she is driving. Uh, he soon invites her and her whole family to move into his house with him. Wow. Okay. So how did she convince him to do that? She's just very, I mean, he's, he's, he's in, he's, he's in, he's, he believes in anything she says. He's so convinced by that. She's actually being able to do this. He's seen all these other people and she is the only one he thinks is authentic. Like, that should be a sign. I, when, if you're looking for an answer and you don't find it, if, you know, look, look at ABC and then you do find it suddenly at X you know, like I've gone through all those other things, but this one feels right. I, I guess he, they, that was what he wanted to hear. Yeah. She said what he wanted to hear. That's it. So he moves, she moves the whole family in. Uh, Lola at this point is 15 and Dodo is six. <laughs> so he's, she's got the daughters. <laughs> but he's a lawyer and he demanded proof of the spirits. Uh, and he was given them in the form of writings and spirit paintings. Like he believed the spirit paintings were enough proof and became profoundly convinced that these paintings were of another world. And I mean, like had this giant collection and just uh, every time they'd have a reading, he'd save the painting and put it on his wall. And so his like, walls are decked in these paintings that were painted by Joe in a closet somewhere. <laughs> um, Marsh had a couple of neighbors named uh, George and Anna Kidd. And eight years previous to when Anne Odelia had moved in, Anna Kidd had caught a butler. Uh, butler. Eight years before Anne Odelia had moved in, 
uh, Anna Kidd caught a burglar in their house and he was, you know, she called the police, he was arrested, he was serving um, eight years in Sing Sing. And Odelia somehow found out about this and she went over next door, knocked on the door and said that she had a vision of the burglar returning to kill the entire family and that the kids should begin to consult her for help. Oh no. Yeah. So she's kind of nasty. So she she's, has, she's expanding her business, yeah, <laughs> working around yeah. the neighborhood. Yep. And this is what she told her. She said in quotes, this is what Anna Delia told Anna Kid. Sorry, there's too many ands. We'll get through this story pretty quick. She said, I implore you to have your house well guarded for the next 21 nights. Never go to bed without searching the house and looking under in the closets and under the beds. That's terrifying. Yeah. I would never be at home. No, I'm like, why? She's scaring the shit out of these people. That's terrible. It's awful. And how can you, you're making someone not even feel safe in their own home. And that's a whole nother level of nasty that I don't want to get into. Yep. Do you know why she did it? Why? So it turns out she wasn't interested in the kids or their money, but the kids had a a house guest who was the widow to the former president of Guatemala. Her name was Francesca de Barrios, and she was the sole heir to her husband's fortune. And Anne Odelia wanted in on that. She's like, I want that. I want access to this woman. Oh, okay. Now that now everything makes sense now. Oh, yeah. She's always plotting. And she thought, I can communicate with the dead. This woman could talk to her dead husband. There, this, the con never stops. Like, There's no. never any break from her trying to scam people. No, and she's scamming this guy, and then she's going over to their neighbor's house trying to scam the neighbors. It's like, <laughs> doesn't stop. It's just, it's consumed her life. That's all her life is at this point. Right. And, and so now this feels like a TV show or a cartoon, maybe more likely. Like, I feel like at that moment, she like had, when she heard about the, the widow staying at the neighbor's house, which uh, Marsh had told her about, the, the old man that she's conning, he told her at some point, I feel like dollar signs immediately appeared in her eyes. Yeah. And then started it. So she keeps bugging the neighbor. She keeps going over with like urgent news from the widow's dead husband. She says she keeps getting communications from him and that she needs to warn the, the, the widow about what's going on. And, and Anna Kidd is like, no, you're not coming in. I think you're crazy. I think you're up to something. You can't come in my house. Leave me alone. <laughs> so then Adelia convinces Marsh to take her to a private dinner that the kids are throwing with their house guest, this, this widow. And so they, they take a carriage to this private dinner and she starts screaming outside and to, to, to have this woman come out because, you know, she's got an urgent message from this woman's dead husband. She just needs to tell her. And the kids are like, oh, fuck it. Finally, yeah, fine. No, Whatever. They just, no, they, they, they yelled when they said they were going to call the police. They didn't believe they were welcome there. <laughs> I thought it was going a completely different direction. <laughs> yeah, so the, what the, the message that <laughs> Anna Odelia wanted to relay is that uh, the widow should take her fortune and trust it with um an attorney and then marsh her victim happens mm-hmm. to be an attorney right. so why not put that all that money with him he'll look after it and make sure it's safe meanwhile he's wrapped around her finger uh, that's the oh god that's it's yeah terrible. it's terrible it is terrible um so she so anna delia goes back over to the kid's house and convinces one of the new servants who didn't have like the 411 of don't let this lady in the house to let her in 
So she goes into their house and Anna Kid finds out about it. She's in the house and she's furious and she she goes in the living room and there's Anna Delia like laying on the couch. And she notices that she like quickly puts something in her pocket and she goes, you need to leave immediately. You're not welcome here. I don't know why they let you in, but you can't be here anymore. Um, and so Anna is fine, fine, I'm, I'm leaving. Goes, and as Anna Kid looks around, she notices that one of the marble statues in her living room is missing a finger. So she just stole the statue's finger and that's it? That's not it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she gets a message uh, from Anna Delia to come over that they're performing a, a ceremony that she needs to be a part of. And she begrudgingly goes next door with her husband and there's a, a block of marble. And she says that I'm going to uh, summon forth an, a, an item and, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it underneath this handkerchief. And when I summon it, you know, you'll, it, it means something. It's, it's a message from the spirits. And so she's rigged this thing to like start shaking. And this like dust comes out, like almost like marble dust, like out from underneath this handkerchief. And when it's done, she lifts it up and she obviously palms it. Like she, and it's the finger, it's the missing finger. And, she, and, and Anakin is like, are you fucking kidding me? Like what, really? This is what's happening. So she grabs the finger and she leaves the house and she stomps off. And <laughs> Anna Delia is furious because Anakin didn't pay her for the finger. Wow. <laughs> she was uh, so mad. She went next door and started screaming and saying, you'd have to pay for that. Pay for what? Stolen property? She said she created it, but it miraculously it fit perfectly on the statue that was missing a finger. I feel like th- there's no way, like, if uh, Adelia went to the police that they would buy that. I, I mean, can you imagine living next door to this woman? I would go crazy. I would move immediately. I know, that's the thing. I just keep thinking about these poor neighbors and all the bullshit they're going to put up with by this wacko woman. <laughs> um. Yeah, so at this point, a lot of people that are around Marsh, he doesn't have family, but a lot of people around him start to get concerned. And um, a couple of investigators from his law firm start to look into Anodelia. They're like, something's wrong. He's not coming into work. You know, like we've not seen him like this. He seems to be so wrapped up in this woman. Um, They find out that he has signed over the deed to his house to Anodelia. And that she went ahead and took out a mortgage for $11,000 on the house that she was given. And this is really, again, a mansion. I mean, it's it's a giant brownstone mansion. Why would she need the mortgage at that point? Like, what? I don't understand. You pull the, you pull the money out of it. You want It's $11,000 cash. But you have a mansion. Yeah, but it, she didn't care. She didn't ditch that. Leave him with the bill and the mansion. You know, she'll just pull as much money out of it as she wants. She doesn't, I mean, she never stays very, where she is very long. So she needs to be liquid. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, because she's always worried. She's always worried that the law is going to show up and put her in jail. You got to be able to get out of there quick with as much money as you can. I think that's part of that mentality. It's like, don't stay one place too long. Again, I, I, I want to go back. Marsh is absolutely this, like a heartbreaking character. Um, all he wants at this point is for people to see what he sees in Anodelia. And so he writes letters to all of his good friends and he's prepared this speech about um, spirit painting and all the paintings he's got them. And he wants to give this big presentation to all of his close friends about all these paintings that he's got. 
and and none of them are buying into it like they Poor all know guy. what's going on yeah and they're like he's being taken by this woman we can't i can't even humor this um a couple of his friends are own newspapers you know and so they you know they're just like we've read these stories about this woman we just can't i can't do it so he sends them out he plans this whole event and none of his friends show up for it oh I uh, yeah instead it's like a throng of reporters who've caught wind of this event and so now the press just goes crazy on the story and and, and really puts him makes him look like an idiot yeah. makes her look like a terrible person which i don't think he's an idiot i think he's heartbroken and it makes me really sad kind of yeah. what he went through but he's still defending her i mean he doubles down on her and he says that she's really the real thing and she's helping him and and they're like, no, you're a joke. You know, people are laughing at you. What is it about her that just makes all these people like love her? That I don't know. The papers just trashed him and made him look so bad. But but for Anna Delia, she didn't care. She was like, I'm a star. Look at all these right. things. Like, this has done wonders for me. <laughs> Any press she, was good press. Yeah, she loves it. She loves it. That's going to come back to bite her in the ass. Marsha's friends hired a law firm on his behalf. As they had finally connected, collected enough evidence to to go after Anadelia, and so Anadelia and Joe Distabar, her quote unquote general husband, were arrested. An affidavit was filed by her brother George, and that is what I read from at the very beginning of this, talking about how he would not trust her under any circumstance. And another affidavit was filed, was filed by her former business partner James Robinson. This guy. If we've learned anything in this series is don't fuck up with fuck around with anybody who's really close to you and don't try and rip them off because they will turn on you and that is the end of it. It happened to Ponzi, it's happening here. So she'd hired him on as a business manager when she was talking about taking her spirit painting show on the road. And then she didn't pay him and she refused to pay him and he quit. And he was like, Well, I'm going to expose everything. I'm going to expose you. I'm going to take you down. Let's go. You want to, you fuck me. I'm fucking you. <laughs> you fuck on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this went to trial and it was, I mean, at the time it was the biggest trial that had ever been in the newspaper. I mean, it was, it was crazy the amount of coverage and political cartoons of hers. this like giant fat woman sitting in this courthouse. The New York times even called her a big fat scammer. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just, it's really, yeah, it's it's really unfortunate how much they drove that home. But it was, I mean, it it really, if she was a star leading up to the trial, she was infamous afterwards. Like, she was not a star anymore. Excuse me. She was a villain. I mean, this really painted her in that Yeah, but did it really matter to her, though? Uh, Not at the time. I think she thought she'd, she'd, you know, brush it right off. Um, But what they did do, which I think is really funny is they brought in a magician as one of the witnesses. Sounds familiar. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so he was there to testify about some of her tricks. And so what he did was he took a piece of paper and he folded it four times, right? And he, he uh, or no, he gave it to, I'm sorry, he gave it to Anna Delia to fold four times, right? blank on both sides, no big deal. He then takes the piece of paper and he, he palms it and switches it for a piece of paper that when you unfold it has a bunch of writing on it. And so he palms it really quickly. And Anna Delia says, wait, 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 you're not going to trick me. I always mark my paper. And so he said, okay. So she takes the paper and she tears off a little corner. She thinks that it's still the all blank piece of paper. And he's not going to be able to replicate that when she's, when he swaps it. What he did 
is that he swapped it before he was supposed to swap it. Like he, uh-huh. he, he immediately palmed it, which was a lot riskier. People could catch it. He wasn't supposed to do that. He was supposed to palm it before he put it on her forehead, you know, to have the magic writing take place. And so he's like, I took this chance because I knew that she would try something like this. And she only knew how to do the trick one way or he knew how to do it twice, two different ways. And so when they unfold the paper, the, the corner is torn on the paper that already had the writing on it, you know, because he'd already disposed of the blank piece. Oh, wow. Okay. So she had tried to expose him and he was like, I know she's going to do this. We're not going to have that happen. So he switched it a step before he, the trick you usually would, would do that. So I wound up working at her disadvantage. Then. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, 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 you know, Marsh was in the audience and he said, yes, that's impressive, but she's still really authentic. He didn't believe it. Oh, so they didn't, come on, man. <laughs> no. So uh, they did another, he did another trick for the, um, for the court where he had a binder with like a bunch of like bound the most fun court case of all time right I was like, <laughs> like we should have more magicians show how to do these tricks you know what i might actually not try to get out jury duty <laughs> <laughs> maybe they'll do some shit like this <laughs> yeah that'd be a good case to get and sadly being on jury duty a few times it's never that much fun um, so they did another trick that was really similar. It was with a, a bound bunch of paper. And you know, once again, he, he made the switch really quick before she could catch on. And she's like, I need to mark that toward the corner. Once again, it proved that, it, you know, he was a step ahead of her and, and it showed everybody. So it, I think um, it really surprised Anna Delia because she was like, I got you. And then he's like, no, you don't. I got you. <laughs> So she was she was shocked and she was really upset by it. So the thing that made Marsh turn on Anne Odelia, right? You've seen all of this. We're having a court case. Is in, in over the course of the trial, he discovers that Anne Odelia and Joe Distabar are not actually married. Hmm. And uh, that so offends him. I, I, that that's the deal breaker. I, Yes. That's the deal breaker? That these yes. people are fake married? Yes. Living in sin with two daughters under his roof. Oh my God. Come the fuck on, dude. That's it. That's the reason. And once he finds that out, he's done with them. He can't he can't handle it anymore. He still thinks she's he still thinks she's gifted and he still thinks he believes everything that she's done. I cannot let this whore live in my house. That's it. He has, to cut, he has to cut ties. He's so offended by this. Oh he has to God. cut ties. But he still, he still, you know, thinks that she's exactly who she said she was. And nothing that they presented in court to a lawyer. Mind you, he's a lawyer, right? So he's seeing all of this in a court of law, and he still doesn't believe it. Dude, the way she had him wrapped up is insane. Yeah. So she and Joe were uh, sentenced to six months in prison which is doesn't sound like a lot and it's not no. and i think it's mostly because marsh never pressed charges yeah. he never felt like he had to it was just it was on behalf of his friends and it was a, they were alleging various frauds but since he would not testify against her they they didn't get any more than 6 months and so after that it was her her grift was done you know she um, was so overexposed in the newspapers she couldn't go anywhere without yeah. people knowing who she was. Like it was, I mean, even she immediately leaves New York. She doesn't ever come back to New York. Well, did, did they have pictures of her? Like how could, how could people know who she was? They had pictures. They had cartoons. There were cartoons oh, okay. all over the place. I mean, the coverage 
everywhere. We do have pictures. There's quite a few pictures of her that you can still find online, you know, that are not mugshots. People knew who she was. I mean, people were like, and it was such a scandal. And I mean, it was just, you know, when news breaks at a certain time, if it's, you know, quote unquote, a slow news day, and this is what mm-hmm. catches up. And this is like, this, this is news, but it's also gossip and it's intrigue. And it's like rich people getting their money taken, which everybody's like really in. Like, that's why we have a show. Um, <laughs> you know? You know, so people were really interested, but she became, she was overexposed and was not able to operate in the same manner because she's also, I mean, she is recognizable. She's a big lady and, you know, they, they, she's got a very distinct face and people just knew her. She um, was in Chicago. She got arrested and jailed there. She went to South Africa. She went in, she was in London. She got busted and sentenced to seven years in jail there. Um, she ended up in New Orleans for a spell and she was uh, exiled from that city and never <laughs> allowed to return. So she spends a lot of time in jail, in and out of jail, traveling all over, different men at her side, different names, but nothing ever really big happened with her. It, it kind of in a last hurrah in uh, 1909, she attempted to start a new religious cult called the New Revelation. She had returned to New York City for the first time since her trial. Uh, but she abandoned her plan one week before it was to open because journalists revealed her true identity. So, oh they, my God! So she was this close to being the cult leader. Yeah, it probably wouldn't last long. But yeah, they they exposed her before she could get it off the ground, and that was it. And and I, um, she's believed to have died that same year, but there's no, there's not a lot of good records of that. Okay, well, what happened to being a two-parter, Austin? I realized that there wasn't a lot after she got out of out of jail um, <laughs> after the Marsh trial. I thought there was going to be a lot more, but as I read through it, it's just a lot of like she goes, she gets into town, she sets up shop, she gets busted, goes to jail, and it just felt like I was like, I can't imagine doing a whole episode of just that over and over again. So right. I figured like we talk about her peaking and then just do like a really quick summary. But I do want to end this with a quote uh, from someone who despised her. Uh, and everybody should know who uh, Harry Houdini is. So Harry, Harry Houdini not only wrote uh, opinion pieces for a lot of the newspapers that got syndicated all over the United States, but he also wrote a book and has a whole chapter about her. And this is exactly how he feels about Anne Odelia Distabar. Anne Odelia Distabar's reputation was such that she will go down in history as one of the great criminals. She was no credit to spiritualism. She was no credit to any people. She was no credit to any country. She was one of these moral misfits, which every once in a while seemed to find their way into the world. Better better far had she died at birth than to have lived to spread the evil that she did. God damn, Houdini. I know, savage. (laughs) I think that will replace our uh, Where is James Randy segment. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, every Houdini was on this 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 game. Far, he actually inspired Randy. Randy yeah. started his career, you know, redoing, trying to beat all of Houdini's records. You know, so right. anything, anything Houdini did, Randy tried to do it better. And so Houdini was really big into. Um, it's a little different. Houdini wanted to believe that spiritualism was real, and he wanted to prove that it was real. Randy had the opposite approach. Randy said, right. it's not real. And I'm going to prove that it's not real, you know, but Houdini through wanting to prove it was real, proved it wasn't, you know, cause he was like, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, prove to me that it's real. And no one ever could. And so he was like, this is obviously not real. I'm, I'm disappointed. And Randy's like, 
taking where Houdini left off and said, this is not real, but if you can prove that it is, I'll give you a million dollars. So it's very different, but I just think she's interesting because everyone speaks so, I mean, a lot of people speak really negatively about her, but no one knows about her today. Like yeah. she, she never traveled outside of her era. I would like, if you, if we wouldn't have done this episode, I would never know who she was. No. I mean, I, I didn't know until I really started digging into her. You know, I saw the Harry Houdini stuff and I was like, who is this that he's speaking so ill of? Right. Well, I think that wraps up this episode. Um, where do we go from here? What's, what's next for If You Catch My Grift? I honestly don't know. I've got a few people that I've started to look into, but I haven't settled on one. So it'll be a mystery next week. We do have one episode set in stone that we know that we're going to do with the Rochester Birdman, a.k.a. Orange Flaccity, a.k.a. Mr. Jake Bird is going to be a guest host. And we're going to cover Aleister Crowley. Yes, it's I'm excited time. about that because I feel like if we're busting, you know, we're busting fake Christians, then we should maybe bust some Satanists too. <laughs> Keep things balanced. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be our first live episode of If You Catch My Graph. So I'm yeah. really excited how that's going to work. Dalton and I are going to meet each other in person for the first time <laughs> and record a podcast. That's the first thing we do. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we're masochists. This is what happens. It's all work. We also have planned, uh, I, I don't know if it's a hard plan, but I brought it up to Austin. We want to do a bonus episode of we give each other, since we, me and Austin have not vastly different, but different music tastes. Different enough. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to give each other an album to listen to, and we're going to review it live on air. So I think that, you know, it'll be a good time. It'll be fun. Yeah, no, we should be up. You know, we're trying to mix things up and, and have, have some fun. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts or, you know, please let us know. Hit us up if you know us in real life. If you don't, um, if you catch my grift at gmail.com, I, you know, Dalton runs all our social, but I, I look at the email. So <laughs> I, do, I do not need to be in charge of the email. <laughs> no, no, Dalton does not need to be in charge of the email. Hold on, let me pull it up. I have... Wait for it. Wait for oh, you're it. Gonna, for you're it. gonna just you're gonna give me anxiety if you say this number. <laughs> uh, not Gmail. All inboxes. I have sixty six thousand three hundred and twenty four unread email. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, Dalton! I can't have two. I, it drives me crazy. This. Oh God. That's yeah. So I'm in charge of email. <laughs> Dalton's much better at social media. Um. So yeah, that's that's how we that's a little peek behind the curtain how we you know divide up the, the <laughs> how each of us live our lives right. <laughs> but I, I do I do say without knowing who's next, we do have some good ones um, that I'm excited to tell y'all about, and I think there's some some interesting folks that uh, you know a lot of people haven't heard of. So it'll be deep digs on people that Dalton legitimately has no idea who they are. <laughs> okay, I'm interested. Uh, which I think are a lot of fun. We have friends. Go check out our friends at Pod Van Dam, IWTV Guide, the Sweet Stuff and Better Things podcast, and Super Fantastic. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Catch My Griff Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Catch Dalton. You can find Austin on Twitter at Austin Agogo. All right, that's it for us. See you next time. On if you catch my grip, I try to get country. I don't know. <laughs> you can find us on if you catch my grip. Okay, don't quit your day job. <laughs>
I'll hear you later, guys. Bye. I want to talk to all you addicts out there that's got yourself a great big Joan and you've tried all the methadone and you just can't leave that heroin alone. I wonder... Don't just touch down, I'm so grateful Numbers so low, bitch be thankful They say don't let money change you That's how we know, money ain't you Bitch I been had, bitches been bad We buy big boats, bitch I'm sin bad Downright sinful, bitch we been full All my dope boys, we like kinfolk Be more burnt spoon, DC glass pipe VA scent bells, bout that trap life Blew through thousands, we made millions Cocaine soldiers Want civilians Bought hoes Hondas Took care children Lit my pastor Built out buildings Wrapped on classics I've been brilliant Now we blend in We chameleons Luxury to drop when he want cause nobody else could fuck with me. What a show off. Nigga, wrist for wrist, let's have a glow off. Fuck it, brick for brick, let's have a blow off. If we go by connections made, I can still climb ladders when complexions fade. Yeah. White on white, that's the tester. Black on black, that's the Tesla. See these diamonds in this watch face? All that shit came from pressure They don't miss you till you gone with the wind And they tired of dancing like a yin-yang twin You can't have the yin without the yang, my friend Real niggas bring balance to the game I'm in Yeah, Can't escape the scale if I tried Interstate trafficking's alive, push Never have I been locked up in a world of misery I need you, darling, to set me free Still fresh off the boat, niggas Don't make me super soak, niggas Your life ends up a quote, nigga The good die young All dogs go to heaven It's really just mamas falling out on the reverend I play musical chairs with these squares Rich Flair before they was Ric Flair's Cocaine concierge Longest running trapper of the year Stood the test of time like Dapper Dan Season my sauce like Zatarans Is he still in the caravan? No It's a meal in the caravan Whoa Richard Mill on a leather band Ooh. Behind the wheel like an ambulance Go On my way up to Maryland Never have I been locked up in a world